Welcome to the Global Report podcast, a discussion on current events and global matters. I'm your host, Morgan DeWicke, and with me is co-host Professor William Lawrence. In this episode, we will be discussing the ongoing conflict in Gaza, political challenges to peace, and our experience participating in a conflict resolution program with Palestinian and Israeli teenagers. To stay up to date on future episodes, visit globalreportpodcast.com. So Bill, tell me a little bit about why we're covering this subject today, why this is so important to you and I. Well, after um, my uh, 20 years of working in a variety of domains, I went back to the State Department not long after 9-11 and worked in Near Eastern Affairs for a while and then was recruited by a gentleman named Bob Sensony, who was a somewhat of a legendary diplomat at the State Department, um, particularly for creative programs. And he had um, always uh, a half dozen pots on a stove. <laughs> he was cooking something up, and uh, and one of those uh, uh, was the Fairhaven Project, which uh, your father and you um, had uh, worked with Bob on. Which, the way I would describe it, is um, a uh, a program to bring at-risk Palestinian and Israeli uh, youth from the border areas. Um, uh, where conflict is at its worst, um, to Fairhaven in the summer uh, to learn to live and work together and to learn leadership skills. Uh, and um, the larger part of it was at sea on the Fritha, tall ship, which you had the uh, honor, I guess, of captaining as the youngest certified tall ship captain in the, in the United States. Um, and I actually, even though I had a sailing background and I'm very comfortable in the water, never actually um, joined the project at sea. Um, I was uh, mostly focused on the land component uh, and given my background in uh, mediation, negotiation, in Middle Eastern politics and affairs, um, I would sit with the um, young people and talk through their lives and their lived experience and try to build bridges on land uh, when they were uh, forming relationships um, at various points in the program. And um, uh, and then I was deeply involved in the movie uh, called One, uh, which uh, I was, I think, credited with as one of the executive producers and uh, worked very hard with you guys on the to, to bring it together. Uh, and that, um, and you can fill in some gaps here, that became a multi-year project um, with Israelis and Palestinians coming to Fairhaven until uh things got politically in the region and politically um in terms of the politics of the state department uh uh made it made it hard to continue the program uh, and so um we moved on to other things uh, you guys moved on to other things and uh and here we are um 15 years later or so and another war's broken out in the middle east uh, we've been working together on uh, um several projects, including the uh, Maritime Revitalization Program and the um, creation of the Center for Ocean Policy and Economics. Um, but we've also been following politics and we always include international politics and in what we're doing. And then we came up with the idea of a new podcast uh, after having uh, uh, done a previous podcast during COVID called Maritime Matters, uh, more focused on um, variety of global issues that we're both interested in. Uh, Sometime with an oceans and maritime angle, I spent five years in the Bureau of Oceans and Environmental Science um, at the State Department, where you also interned uh, um, 
So we hope to bring content uh, from the field, from the states, uh, connecting uh, local coastal communities to international affairs uh, in, in ways. I also grew up in South Dartmouth, Massachusetts, uh, just on the other side of New Bedford um, from the uh, uh, from Fairhaven. So I have a deep appreciation of both the history of that area and the potential of that area, which uh, of course you and your dad have been deeply involved in with the development of the school and local job opportunities and local research. Um, so I'm looking forward to uh, uh, this opportunity and bringing in some of our people we both admire and others that, that we'll be, you know, bringing in through other mechanisms. But, uh, uh, you know, since we work so much together in international affairs and you, you have degrees, of course, from American University and, um, and GW, uh, both universities that I've taught at and I'm teaching at and uh, international affairs and I've also worked at a number of other schools. Um, so I'm just looking forward to um, tackling issues of interest to our audience. And we hope over time, as people see these episodes, they'll um, contact us through various social media platforms uh, and give us ideas and give us feedback on what you like. Yeah, I think I really wanted to dive into this issue um, of Gaza, Israel. Um, it's nuanced, it's complicated. Everyone's sort of talking about it, but we bring to this particular subject sort of um, lived experience of dealing with the issue vis-a-vis uh, -vis a conflict resolution program, which I think is quite unique and uh, in, in a perspective that really is hard to come by. Um, and it's hard to believe it's been 15 years um, since sort of the inception of that program. Um, recalling that at the time it was created, we were in a similar sort of situation of, of escalation uh, between Israel-Palestine. Uh, they were going through major conflicts at the time. And so this idea of, at the height of that, bringing together um, individuals in their later teenage years who uh, had been shaped by the conflict, but were still sort of in that period of not being hardened by uh, let's say that the rhetoric and the ideologies that sometimes carry uh, through with living in particular societies. Um, so catching them at sort of that ripe decision-making age where really your opinions start to get shaped uh, was unique. And I think I was very young at the time, but the capacity to, to see those individuals come together uh, through the Fairhaven Project was really unique. Um, I'm curious to to kind of get um, your feedback on how you think the actual dialogue went with the students and sort of how did you see the changes occur from the time that they came into the program, from the time that they left. And mind you, this was only, I think, three weeks um, that we had these students. Um, what was the transformation like over that short time period? Um, and let me just add at this point that I've spent a lot of my career researching youth, youth political culture, youth experience, uh, and then and then been involved in these programs that um, uh, involve implementing uh, things that will help youth guide, you know, uh, navigate the complicated world we live in. So Fairhaven was very much in my wheelhouse, and I'm also off to Nepal uh, tomorrow um, to give um, uh, a keynote lecture on. Um, Counterviolent extremism, and uh, uh, and I'll talk about 
I, I don't know if I'll mention Fairhaven, I might, but I'll talk about um, the various ways we fight um, extremism through dialogue, through engaging with youth, through dealing with their trauma, uh, which we did at, at the Fairhaven Project. Um, uh, it's uh, in counter extremism, it's called the, the trauma-based approach, which uh, is very important. And uh, I wet my teeth a little bit uh, uh, in terms of uh, dialoguing with you guys. Um, the thing that most shocked me when I met these young Palestinians and Israelis, and it was confirmed by polling data I'd studied, but I hadn't really seen it up close. Uh, polling data that said 80% of Israelis didn't personally know an Arab, which shocked me given how interwoven the yep. societies are supposed to be and adjacent and something like 30, 20 to 30% of uh, um, citizens of Israel are Arab and, and if 80% of Israelis don't know an Arab, uh, that gives you the, the level of segregation and alienation right. between the communities that we're dealing with. Uh, and then just having them tell their stories. I mean, these kids sitting there and going, I live 30 kilometers from the ocean. I've never seen the ocean. You know, I yep. can't go from, and I, I, uh, excuse me if I get this wrong, you know, from area A to area B to area C without like, it's like going through an, an international border. And if I don't have permission to go there, I can't go. Uh, and then on, on the other side, of course, that was the Palestinian kids, the Israelis just basically saying, you know, I argue with my friends because I'm pro-peace and they aren't. And yet none of us know people from over there. And, you know, we're being attacked all the time. So it's very hard to be pro-peace, you know. And then you know what happened uh, after participants uh, in the program went back and troubled in conflicts uh, and all that. But uh, getting back to your question, uh, the most amazing thing I saw was people transformed from um, – having each other at sort of three arms distance and looking at each other warily, doubting the sincerity of the other side, doubting the um, um, humanity of the other side to some degree to being the best of friends by the end of summer, you know, mm -hmm. and, and trusting each other. And that was sort of the way you guys designed the program and implemented it was about building trust. Uh, and it was just amazing to see how comfortable they were because you know, I wasn't there every day of the summer, so I'd see them you know, maybe towards the beginning and towards the end and at graduation, and they just were fast friends um, and trustful human beings to, towards each other uh, in a context where nobody trusts anybody, and that, that transformation was really special. Now, how do you compare that observation to what's unfolding today? There's a clear when you have individuals on a, a human to human level in a knowledge of one another, there's a clear opportunity for more bridging, more understanding, um, more tolerance for one another. Observing what you just said, um, that societies were so um, segregated, is that part of what contributed to the spilling out recently? Has since that 15 year period, have things just become more segregated? Has it become more divided? Um, how do you see the difference today versus 15 years ago? Um, this may sound strange, but I'm gonna say something a little bit maybe counterintuitive. The, the biggest interesting aspect to me of the October 7th massacre that triggered everything we're going through right now is that this was not only some kind of um, uh, cultural events, you know, trance, meditation, that, you know, sort of a, 
not, not quite um what's the one in the southwest called the um the, the big music festival uh in, in the southwest oh. u.s and, yeah yeah you know, yeah it, it's it's not quite uh on that level but it, it was a, it was a um a spiritually focused cultural event and the kids that were there were the most peacenicky of israelis you know and then the right. image of these uh, uh um uh, Palestinians flying in on hang gliders and uh, uh, massacring people uh, at a music festival in the hundreds uh, was just mind blowing, you know, particularly given who their target was. And you, you may have noticed a little another indication of this in the early hostage exchanges. Um, some of the hostages were released really quickly, even without um, swaps by Hamas. Because Hamas quickly figured out on the other Palestinian captors who the peacenicky Israelis were, and they let them go first. You mm -hmm. know, so there's that side of Israeli society we don't hear about much, but but the the, the general trend on the Israeli and Palestinian side um, is uh, uh, getting worse and worse year on year, more and more segregated year on year, more bigoted year on year, um, and uh, uh, it, it takes work to humanize others. It also takes work to dehumanize others. And there's been a lot of dehumanizing going on on both sides of this conflict for years now, you know, right. to the point that a lot of people just don't care. You know, most Israelis and, and very, uh, you know, um, strongly pro, strong response uh, Jewish Americans just don't want to hear that much about the 26,000 Palestinians that have lost their lives. They want to hear about the 1,200. And most of the Palestinians and Arabs I know just don't want to hear about the 1,200. They want you to feel the pain of the 2,600. And that uh, inability to feel the other side's pain, to empathize, to um, humanize, um, uh, uh, it's just getting worse and worse. And the international community is not helping. You know, we've seen versions of it on U.S. campuses. Or the two sides going after each other, and, and we often frame it as a free speech issue, um, but but it's more importantly, it's an empathy issue. It's a it's a human humanity issue. It's a you know how are you going to deal with people you don't agree with, and think you dislike, um, and uh, because that's the culture you live in. Uh, let me also say, since I'm from Massachusetts and you're in Massachusetts. Um, that some of the hardest core settlers, which are now subject to US, new U.S. sanctions, unprecedented U.S. sanctions, are from mm. Massachusetts. I know kids from high school and their kids from Massachusetts schools who are out there um, forcing Palestinians out of their homes, getting killed by Palestinians and reprisal attacks. I mean, the, 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 the sort of front end of the settler activity in Israel, which is coming under more and more scrutiny by the U.S. government, is nasty and a lot of it's out of new york and boston and a lot of it's built on bigotry you know this idea that arabs and muslims can't possibly be trusted or mm. on the other side israelis and jews can't possibly be trusted and what's the evidence all the death and destruction you know and so fair haven is the exact opposite of that and it's not the only thing there were seeds of peace right up in maine there were other programs that brought people together yours was uh, special in many ways but you know, it's it. You're not the only ones that proved um, that you can work across the divide and build relationships and trust. That's a great point. I think part of what's frustrating about sort of the civil discourse here in the U.S. Um, 
it's it's very emotional, which is well understood. That's you know a natural reaction. But I think there's there's this desire to kind of argue that one side's more right than the other. Um, we're going to put things on a scale and try to weigh them, and which one weighs more than the other, uh, which I think is just it's the wrong approach and it's not the humanitarian approach to the issue um, in terms of trying to find a resolution or a, a peaceful outcome. Um, to say that one side is more wrong than the other negates the fact that both sides are wrong in most cases. Both sides have committed atrocities. Both sides um, are not being honest about their intentions. Um, and I think we can talk about sort of the the cultural divide, the cultural issues that we've we've identified here, but I think there's also this underlying kind of issue with um, the politics, and I think we've been living in, uh, at least on the Israeli side, a political society that has no desire for a two-state solution, um, has only recently admitted as such, um, and in this case, I'm talking about Netanyahu. Right. Um, previous to this point, the Israeli government had sort of been tiptoeing around, we want a one state, we want a two state. They were very coy about providing um, any clarity as to their formal position. Um, but I think it's become abundantly clear, as stated in public, uh, the Israelis never wanted a two state solution, at least this government. And this government's been in power for quite a long time. Um, and so they've sort of been hustling. Um, their partners, their allies, who around the world have been wanting a two-state solution for decades. Um, how do we deal with that? How does how do a coalition of other countries tackle this this sort of um, hurdle? It's it's the biggest hurdle to the conflict right now is, is that peace. Um, and for one side to come out and say that they're totally against that concept. Um, sans uh, changing government, you really, there's no pathway forward for a two-state solution at the moment. Well, as a longtime practitioner of international affairs, um, I'd sequence it this way in my mind. First, you got to figure out what your values are. You know, then you got to figure out what your political objectives are. And then you have to negotiate. And part of that is mediating and sort of understanding the other's goals. And then that's the, that's the hardest part is coming up with a solution. Um, you'll often hear in defenses of Israel, Israel that um, uh, you have to accept Israel's right to exist. You know, Israel's right to exist, although it's the only nation in the world that keeps claiming that right. And one of the counterpoints is it doesn't define its borders. Israel has no defined borders. So to, mm -hmm. to, 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 to be forced to say you have to recognize Israel's right to exist when, you know, one minute it's pre 67 borders in the next minute's river to the sea, you know, is, is absurd, you know. Um, and, you know, for, for all of the good and bad things we can say about the Trump administration, I'd be happy to list, you know, in a longer podcast what the Trump administration did well and wrong. One of the interesting innovations of the Biden administration has been from day one, they said, not we want negotiations, we want peace. They said, we want a future in which a Palestinian life is equal value to an Israeli life. And they keep repeating it. And even though they haven't lived up to that um, 
value uh, in the um, uh, period from October 7th when too many Palestinians were killed and injured and starved and attacked and forced out of homes. Um, there's another aspect of that coming through now because the uh, privately, the U.S. government is saying to the Netanyahu government, we want a two-state solution. And they say, we don't want a two-state solution. And then the Biden administration, instead of going throwing up their hands, which is what previous administrations would tend to do, they say, okay, but you agree with us that Palestinians deserve rights and deserve dignity. Oh, yes. Okay, they say, what gives them rights and what gives them dignity? And then they start another conversation. Uh, Biden also last weekend, you know, he recently said, um, when they said, uh, you know, two-state solution, Biden said there's a lot of different types of two-state solutions. And he went back to this 1970s proposal that Palestinians uh, agreed to at the time, as long as Israel didn't impose it, of a non-military sovereign state, you know, and that would pose no um, security risk to Israel. And, and the way in which um, Biden himself burns some of the better people in the administration, um, I'm not always sure Blinken's on that list, uh, and, and Jake Sullivan, uh, and I'm not a big fan of Bretman Burke, but there are several people in this administration and also sort of at that second tier level who are really thinking creatively about how to value Palestinian lives, how to give them political rights, how to give them dignity, whatever the Israelis end up saying about um, a state, uh, because that's the key of international affairs. It's the key of uh, so many things, like in negotiations and in mediation, they train you. Um, the, the, the best outcome is not when you give your interlocutor, your foe, your enemy, or whoever you're negotiating with, what they want. It's when you give them what they need. So you have to figure out what their needs are and how their needs line up with your needs and all. And, that, and then it goes back up to that values level. And if people's values and, and needs can be met, sometimes you can talk people into something other than what they came to the table wanting. Um, another piece of this just worth throwing out there is that, uh, uh, Netanyahu is a 15% 1-5 approval rate. His gays are numbered, but most Israelis want him out on corruption issues. So yep. the U.S. is not just talking to Netanyahu and the right-wing members of his government. They're talking to the whole Israeli political class. Um, and uh, and they're saying, you know, what's a post-Netanyahu government going to do in terms of the state? And while I, uh, I'm saying that, I think Biden's approval level in Israel is about four times. Uh, I think it's up around 60%, four times Netanyahu's. You know, Biden could win if he doesn't visit right now to win, which is surprising given how so many pro Australian Americans think Biden's terrible and he's too pro Muslim, pro Arab, all well, that the, stuff. The, when in fact, Israelis want Biden to get their hostages out, to bring this war to an end, and to move forward, uh, which is not what his government is. I think many uh, Israeli Americans are pro Netanyahu, is the issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, what do you think about the Palestinian side? I mean, obviously, there's been sort of this bifurcation of um, authority. Um, there's been a lack of consolidated governance and political representation in Palestine, uh, which is kind of what has allowed this Hamas to prop itself up through this power vacuum, through a lack of structure. Um, would there ever have been a world where with a, a stronger Hamas that you could have had um, a peaceful solution anyways uh, as a result of their ideologies? Or 
is this attack in October 7th in response to sort of the lack of basic humanities and, and provision for the people of Gaza. So getting back to one of the sort of themes of this conversation, uh, on the Israeli side, state and society, there are peaceful and there are violent tendencies. And on the Palestinian side, state and society, there are peaceful and there are violent. And that goes for Fatah, the PLO, and that goes for Hamas too. Um, uh, uh, and nobody has clean hands. I mean, the reason Hamas exists is part is because the U.S. insisted on elections back in 2005 that produced, you know, somebody was going to fight the occupation, right, which we ended up designating terrorist organization. Uh, but they're, first and foremost, not terrorists. They're freedom fighters for against an occupation. And then they're also terrorists, right? right. Um, and they're also Muslim Brotherhood oriented. And Muslim Brotherhood, brothers tend to be, uh, sort of interesting characters, but one thing they are not is corrupt. Generally, they tend to be cleaner in their administration and steal less money. Um, whereas Fatah, which the Israelis purposefully enfeebled, and Netanyahu helped create Hamas as a counterweight to the PLO, Fatah, um, uh, and then the Israeli imprisoning of so many Palestinians uh, created the cadres for Hamas. They were all they've all been held in prison, and then. Those long imprisonments, you know, created that um, that resentment that leads to Hamas. Um, so Israel is deep, is deeply implicated as is the United States in the creation of Hamas. Um, uh, 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 Israel, on the other hand, got what they wanted, which is a weak PLO, which they underappreciated, underfunded, and then constantly accused of corruption. They are more corrupt, and then kind of dismissed as a, um, a useless appendage. But the other problem is that this, the Palestinians didn't dismiss the PLO Fatah even more as a useless appendage because they count out to the Israelis and they're the Israelis' cops sort of supporting the occupation uh, with this very limited budget, uh, et cetera. So uh, it's not that there's a leadership vacuum. It's that um, Israel created a leadership vacuum on purpose and now we need leadership and there's nothing there, right? Uh, and so uh, one of the outcomes here is that some version of the PLO is going to have to take over the political leadership of Gaza after this is over. And the cadres are going to have to be ex-Hamas uh, because they know, uh, you know, how to run the hospitals and the utilities and everything else. You can't bring in foreign people to do that. So just like we had in um, Iraq and Libya, you can't debathify or decadathize and then everyone goes and joins ISIS, which happened in both countries, you know. And so you're going to have to bring back the old cadres, the, the least corrupt ones and the least violent ones and have them run everything, you know, and then that'll get really complicated. So um, unfortunately, um, even though Israel would like to wish away um, their problems, uh, they're going to go back to some version of the status quo ante and have to live with the neighbors they helped create. Uh, and the U.S. is going to have to play a big role there. If I could add one thing there, Brett McGurk, um, who has worked with the Trump administration and the Obama administration and the Biden administration, is currently in the region touting the rapprochement with Saudi Arabia and the economic side of this, almost like Trump's the old century, which is what nobody in the region wants to hear about. Not the Israelis, not the Palestinians, not the Arabs. Uh, they want to hear about a political solution first right. and then investment, not just how we're going to pay Israelis pay Palestinians off to be quiet. Uh, the, the Israelis even floated in a European meeting uh, a week ago, a, building an artificial island off the coast and putting all the Palestinians on it, which 
shows you sort of the level of absurdity here when it right. comes to uh, wishing Ridiculous. away problems and then throwing money at them, which just never works. So I think that that rolls into talking a little bit about kind of the broader Middle East, North Africa um, geopolitics. You know, uh, we recently had a declaration by a group of um, Arab nations really uh, vouching for the establishment of a Palestinian state as the solution to this problem. And that's sort of their expectation moving forward. Um, how would that play into creating the new governance, new establishment model um, of the Palestinian territories? And how does that in the long term influence uh, Israeli decision making and potentially leading to a, a two state solution? Well, all your questions are great, including that one. Um, and it's really complicated. But I think the simplest way to think of it is the Arab involvement is sort of a double-edged sword. What the Israelis always wanted to do was have Egypt govern the south, Jordan govern the east, and then eventually just absorb all the Palestinians into their traditional countries. You know what I mean? And then Israel would get all the land. And so they would sort of turn to the Arabs and say, yeah, we'd like to work with you on this problem. And by the way, could you take uh, these 7 million people? You know, uh, which is one of the reasons Palestinians would rather die than be um, triply forced out because 60% of Gazans um, are descendants or directly involved in the 48 and the 1948 and the 1967 expulsion. So this will be the third time these refugees are kicked out. Um, and so they're not going anywhere. Uh, they're refusing to unless they're forced out at gunpoint. Um, uh, uh, and and so the Arabs are saying, yeah, we want to be involved, but not involved in bringing all of these Palestinians out of their native homeland into our countries. Um, but we're perfectly willing to pay for this reconstruction if we have a political deal, and we're perfectly willing to help with the political deal. Uh, they go back to Oslo language, as I do. You know, uh, uh, sixty-seven borders, land swaps where they don't want to evacuate areas. Um, compensation uh, for loss of land, loss of homes, um, uh, a limited right of return, and, uh, um, and and we're off to the races in that way. But what you get with a two-state solution is you get to have a Jewish state. Um, I've looked at about seven different versions of the one-state solution, and that ends up being a non-Jewish state, unless you kick all the Palestinians out. It ends up being a secular state, which a lot of people like the idea of a democratic Israelo-Palestinian state where everyone has all the rights, but I just don't think that'll work given um, how much Jewish global culture is built around the Jewish state of Israel. I just, mm. So then you have to have, for to have what the Jewish global community wants, you have to have a two-state solution. It's the only way to get you there. Uh, and so the Arabs are sincere. Um, they want to help build the state. And then the latest, I think, tactic is, um, and Brett McGurk's part of this, although he doesn't, I don't think he's the whole picture, but yeah, uh, this will come up in the Bill Burns CIA meetings this weekend with the Egyptians and the Qataris and others, uh, is say, hey, uh, Saudi will normalize with you, and most of the 50 Muslim majority Muslim probably countries of the world will follow Saudi Arabia uh, if you give the Palestinians the state. So, um, you know, do it. Uh, and since Israelis are so keen on normalization, there is a, a possibility there. And so how do you envision sort of the Egyptians, the Jordanians, the Saudis getting involved um, in the short term? Now, they've made it abundantly clear that any um, 
expectation of accepting refugees is completely off the table. Um, I think they've drawn that line in the sand very intensely, uh, sort of to prevent uh, the mass evacuation and you know, yeah. the, the third one annexing yeah. of, of Gaza, right, yeah. by Israel, um, yeah. literally bulldozing and steamrolling over um, an entire yeah. territory. So how do they yeah. start to get involved um, at a political and humanitarian level in the short term? In every way. I mean, Egypt was the first peace country to Camp David Accords. Uh, Jordanian followed later, and the Jordanian king and his American uh, America file, uh, she's an American citizen wife, you know, can be often the most articulate Arabs on, on, on um, uh, advocating for Palestinians. And of course, two thirds of Jordanians are of Palestinian heritage uh, or Palestinian nationals. Um, and most of those aren't going back, probably. They'll probably get compensation in the next peace deal, but they won't go back. Um, uh, and, uh, um, uh, and yet, uh, there's only those two countries and then the other four. In Sudan, I'm not even sure it's a full Abraham Accord that, that normalized with Israel. So you've got those six countries, and then you've got 22 Arab countries. The other um, uh, uh, 16 haven't normalized, and they're waiting for Saudi Arabia, which is insisting on a Palestinian state. Uh, and so that's that's the game, right? So what what do I get if I normalize? Is what the Arabs say, and and uh, and the Palestinians say, stop ignoring us. You did all these Abraham Accords and normalizations without us getting a state. So this time we need to be at the table. We need to be included. My biggest fear right now is the majority of Israelis and the majority of Palestinians don't want to make a deal, neither side right now because they're so pissed off at the other side. Whereas yeah. uh, the near totality of Arab countries. The near totality of Europe and the near totality of the globe wants a deal. So how can you know the the other 191 countries of the world convince these two peoples they need to make a deal? Uh, and one formula you're hearing is the state. states. So maybe you don't get a state right away, but you have a five-year plan to a state, and the international community guarantees that each each um, uh, step of the way is met and then we go back to the Fairhaven process right you know how do you build trust between the two sides by doing trust building uh, activities between the two sides that can build trust and build uh, equities in not only one's own success but the other side's success in a, in a peaceful uh, democratic uh, uh, of countries so fast forward to a world where you you have a sort of a peaceful resolution or a ceasefire um perhaps you have a, a two-state solution. We're still faced with all the segregation, the deep-rooted sort of um, cultural divides, cultural differences, uh, religious differences. How do you bridge that gap? Is it through economic integration? Is it through exchange? What is the fastest way to sort of start to build um, trust at a sort of a molecular on a day-to-day -day level uh, between these two countries? Doing it uh, in every way you can and in every field, getting like-minded people together, you know, athletes, people interested in law, people interested in photography, and you can do all kinds of things. And then um, uh, uh, there are a number of formulas for national reconciliation and uh, truth and reconciliation approaches like we had in South Africa where you know, the goal is not throwing people in jail for breaking the law and uh, massacring other people. Uh, the goal is, you know, 
unless your hands are really, really bloody, really, really dirty from the years of conflict, um, your crimes will be excused if you come clean and uh, and participate fully in the society in, in a proper way. And South Africa was one of the few countries that succeeded. There are others that have tried and had various levels of success. Morocco, a country I follow very quickly, did a better job than Algeria, certainly that I follow, follow very closely. And then Algeria, another co uh, country I follow, Tunisia completely failed, which is one of the reasons the democratic transition failed. Um, uh, but um, uh, you do route national reconciliation, you do you can do truth and justice and, and that kind of thing. Um, I was, uh, had the privilege of um, working on a program in Tunisia funded by the National Endowment for Democracy for an NGO I used to work for, where we had this really ambitious plan where we would put groups together in all these cities and come up with transitional justice programs and then meet ministries and um, come up with action plans, civil mill relations, you know, civil, civilian military relations, security forces, and really ambitious. And when we started running our workshops, all every people wanted to do was just tell their stories of woe for hours, for days, for weeks, because no one had heard their pain. It's back yeah, to what I was saying yeah. earlier about trauma. And I think at the beginning, uh, and related to that truth and reconciliation that I was talking about, you just have to let people express their pain and, and, and feel the others. I mean, right now, 10 young Palestinians a day have their legs, one or two legs amputated. You know, I mean, and, and, and you just multiply that out to, to, to hundreds of thousands of traumas happening right now and trauma on the Israeli side. And so um, working through that trauma means starting with not solving problems, but just listening and validating, and then we work out from there. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today, but uh, I'm excited to catch up with you again once you're in Nepal. Um, that's going to be a fun one. And uh Kind of hear about the work that you're doing there and, and touching upon the, the subjects that you're addressing so um, exciting first episode i think we dove into a, a complex subject here and, and it was really great to hear your insights and, and the experiences that you've had so well i really look forward to working with you congratulations to you and to me i guess and uh we're <laughs> off to the races this is uh, and hopefully we'll have three episodes in the um uh in the bank uh within a week or so